Greetings and welcome to Catechesis, a teaching series aimed to instruct in foundational Christian doctrine and to encourage piety amongst the people of God. For those who don't know me, my name is Joe Anity. I serve as pastor at Emmaus Reformed Baptist Church in Hemet, California, and I'm pleased that you have joined me today. In this introductory episode, I hope to accomplish three things. One, I would like to say something about the intended purpose of this series. Two, I would like to say something about the name that I've given to it. And three, I would like to introduce you to the Baptist Catechism, which will be our main text in this series. First, let me say a word about the intended purpose. The purpose has already been stated in that little introductory jingle that you will hear over and over again in the weeks to come. This is a teaching series aimed to instruct in foundational Christian doctrine and to encourage piety amongst the people of God. As we progress through the Baptist Catechism together at the pace of approximately one question per week, you will be exposed to the foundational doctrines or teachings of the Christian faith. And doctrine is always practical, friends. What we believe about God and man is bound to have an effect upon the way that we live in this world. But in this series, we will also labor to make specific application from the doctrines that we will learn. Yes, to be a Christian, one must know, understand, and believe certain doctrines. No one is exempt. Doctrine is not only for the pastor and theologian. To be a Christian is to have faith in Jesus the Christ. To have faith in him means that we trust in him. But to trust in him, that is to believe, depend, or rely upon him for the forgiveness of your sins, one must also know certain truths about him. In other words, knowing Christ requires that you know doctrine. You say that you are Christian and that you believe in Jesus, and that is wonderful. But tell me, who is Jesus? And why do you believe in him? What did he do for you? You say that in him we have the forgiveness of sins. Well, what is sin? Against whom have we sinned? You say that we have sinned against God. Well, who is God? What is he like? Can he be known? So by stringing together this little series of basic questions, I'm trying to demonstrate that doctrine is vital to faith. To have faith is to trust, but it also involves knowing and believing certain truths. Some have used a three-legged stool to illustrate this principle. The three legs of the stool of faith are knowledge, assent, and trust. And if our faith is lacking any one of these, it will fall flat. It is not true faith. To have true faith, one must know certain things. What does the Bible teach about who God is, what he requires of us, and how we might know him now that we are fallen into sin, etc.? These are the facts of the faith. These and many other things are things that we must know. But faith is not true in saving faith if these facts are not believed. It is possible to know a great deal about what the Bible teaches, but to not believe what the Bible teaches. If this knowledge that we have is to be called faith, then we must also assent or approve and agree to the facts that are known. For example, one must say, the Bible teaches that there is one true God, and Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man, and to be saved from their sins, men and women must believe upon him, and I believe it. The I believe it part is the assent, and this is the second leg of the stool of faith in this illustration. But faith, if it is true and saving faith, involves more than just knowledge, and assent. It also involves trust. Concerning this element of trust, R.C. Sproul has said, 
the crucial, most vital element of saving faith in the biblical sense is that of personal trust. Trust is the commitment by which I put my life in the lap of Jesus. I trust him and him alone for my salvation. That is the crucial element, and it includes the intellectual and the mental, but it goes beyond it to the heart and to the will so that the whole person is caught up in this experience we call faith. I think that is very helpful. It must be recognized that a journey through a catechism, such as the Baptist Catechism or any other Orthodox Catechism, can only produce the first of the three legs of the stool that we have just considered. A catechism such as this one will provide us with a wonderful overview or summary of the teaching of Holy Scripture. But it cannot cause the one being instructed to assent to that teaching, nor can it cause them to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. The Holy Spirit of God must produce that within them. So then, should we conclude that using something like a catechism is a waste of time if it cannot produce true saving faith within the one being instructed? And of course, our response to that is, by no means. In fact, teaching through a catechism is one way of preaching the gospel. When we preach the gospel, there is no guarantee that the hearer will assent to what is said or trust in Jesus to the saving of their souls. But we are to preach the gospel knowing that it is the means that the Holy Spirit will use to bring sinners to salvation. Many hear the gospel and reject it, but some hear it and believe. And why is that? It is because the Holy Spirit has made them alive. The Holy Spirit has given them ears to hear and eyes to see. When we teach our children the catechism, we are preaching the gospel to them. In just a moment, I'll give you an overview of the Baptist catechism, and, and you will see for yourself that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is presented there. And when we teach someone who has already professed faith in Christ the catechism, we are fulfilling the commission that Christ gave to his disciples, saying, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Therefore, the catechism is useful both prior to baptism and also after it. It can be used to present the gospel to those not yet in the faith and can also be used to begin to teach disciples to observe all that Christ has commanded. Who then should make use of biblical catechisms? In my opinion, every Christian and every church should. Parents should use catechisms to present the gospel to their children and to instruct them in the Christian faith. Children and young adults should labor to memorize the catechism, or at least to be very, very familiar with it. Those new to the faith will benefit greatly from the use of catechisms, and so too will those who are mature in the faith. I remember hearing a well-known and highly respected seminary professor say that on the Lord's Day, he has a habit of reading the catechism that is used in his tradition. The simplicity of the document is refreshing to him. The gospel that is contained therein encourages his soul. And personally, I have come to appreciate the Baptist Catechism more and more, and not less and less, as I have grown in my theological knowledge. Far from being bored with the simplicity of the Catechism, I have grown ever more impressed with its precision. It presents sound doctrine 
very succinctly, and that is not easy to do. I've also been touched by its warmth. As I have said, the gospel of Jesus Christ is presented here. Instruction in the Christian life is found here. The whole thing is a summary of the basic, clear, and plain teaching of Holy Scripture. How could the people of God not love this catechism or some other which is faithful to the teaching of the Bible? I have said that every Christian should make use of catechisms and also every church. I believe that churches would be wise to adopt a confession of faith so that their doctrines are clearly stated. A confession of faith states what a church believes, but in much greater detail than what is commonly contained within modern statements of faith, as they are called. Ours is the Second London Baptist Confession. And churches would also be wise to adopt catechisms which correspond to and teach the doctrines contained within their confessions. Pastors are then able to use the catechism to equip parents to instruct their children within the home. Pastors are able to use the catechism to instruct young people in the faith. They are also able to use it to prepare those who have professed faith for baptism, no matter if they are young or old. And pastors can use the catechism to reinforce Christian basics with those who are mature, which is certainly needed. I can say from experience that the Baptist catechism has been very valuable to me personally, to me as a husband and father, and to me as a pastor. I thank God for this wonderful little summary of the teaching of Holy Scripture. My hope in producing this series is that the members of Emmaus would tune in weekly, preferably on the Lord's Day evening, to listen to this teaching. My hope is that they, no matter if they are young or old, would work to memorize these questions and answers from week to week. I hope that parents listen to this teaching to be better equipped to teach their children these wonderful doctrines. I also hope that this teaching, once we make it all the way through the Baptist Catechism, will be useful uh, to those who are preparing for baptism. Let me now say a brief word about the name that I have given to this series. I have called it Catechesis. Catechesis is a word that we do not use very often in our day-to-day speech. It simply refers to instruction by word of mouth, typically in the form of questions and answers. It is related to the Greek word katecheo that we find in the New Testament, which means to sound from above, to instruct, to teach. It is found in Galatians 6.6, for example, where we read, Let the one who is taught katechumenos, the word, share all good things with the one who teaches And so, one of the responsibilities of a pastor is to teach. Pastors must instruct. If they don't, they are failing to do their jobs. And the teaching ministry of pastors must be varied. It must be varied due to the fact that in every congregation there are a variety of people present. There are some who are young and there are some who are old. There are some who are well-trained in the Christian faith and there are some who are brand new believers. Hopefully, there will even be some in our midst who do not yet know Christ who are willing to listen to the Word of God being taught. The core of the teaching ministry at Emmaus is the preaching of the Word that takes place each Lord's Day from the pulpit. There, the Word of God is read, it is expounded and applied book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse. But the teaching ministry of Emmaus does not end there. The members of Emmaus are also encouraged to attend adult Sunday school, which we call Emmaus Essentials. There we teach in a more systematic way. 
Our youth gather almost every week for a youth study. Our men and women gather regularly for a time of fellowship and teaching. I could go on. The point I am making is that while the pulpit ministry is is the meat and potatoes of the teaching ministry of the church, it does not stop there. The Word is taught in other venues and in other ways appropriate to the needs of the congregation. And in this teaching series, which I am calling Catechesis, aims to present the basic truths found within Scripture in a systematic way so that those who are young in the faith might enjoy a firm doctrinal foundation on which they can then build, and so that those mature in the faith might ever be reminded of those foundational doctrines upon which their faith is built. By doing so, the Church will be better equipped to do what Jude 3 commands us to do, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Notice that the word faith is not used as a verb here in this passage, referring to personal faith, which is exercised. But instead, the word faith is a noun in Jude 3. It is referring not to personal faith, but to the faith. It is a body of Christian doctrine. This is the thing that the Christian is to contend for, and this is the thing that our catechism teaches and seeks to preserve. It is the Christian faith that is summarized here in our catechism. So then, uh, catechesis is religious instruction, typically presented orally and in the form of question and answer. A catechism is the book which contains the content of the instruction. The person being taught is called a catechumen, and the person doing the instruction is called a catechist. And so now I have explained to you what the word catechesis means. Thirdly and lastly, I would like to briefly introduce you to the Baptist catechism, which is our catechism. There are other very good catechisms besides the Baptist catechism. And there is nothing keeping men from producing new catechisms. A catechism is good if it is clear and is, if it is biblical. But there is value, I think, in using a catechism that is old. It connects us with the past. It reminds us that we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. And this should produce humility within us, to know that we are not the first, nor will we likely be the last, Christians to contend for the faith. Put differently, one might ask, why produce a new catechism if we have old ones that are perfectly good, which have stood the test of time? The Baptist Catechism was first produced somewhere between 1693 and 1695. It is uh, difficult to put a firm date to its publication. Uh, We know that it was not produced before 1693, for it was then that the General Assembly of particular Baptist churches, as we now call them, in and around London, requested that the Catechism be produced. The earliest copy that we have was published in 1695, but by then the Catechism was already in its fifth edition. Uh, Sometimes our Catechism is called Keech's Catechism, attributing its authorship to the early particular Baptist named Benjamin Keech. But those who know the history and the documents well tell us that this is a mistake. It was instead William Collins, an elder at London's Petty France Church, who wrote this catechism. It was he who was appointed by the 1693 General Assembly to produce this document. But the document should not go by either Keech's name nor the name Collins. It is rightly called the Baptist Catechism, for it was the early particular Baptist churches in and around London who called for its production. The Baptist Catechism 
is very similar to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. A few questions from the Westminster Larger Catechism were added by Collins. It is important to know that the Baptist Catechism differs most substantially with the Westminster documents on the point of baptism, as you might expect. For example, question 99 of the Baptist Catechism asks, Are the infants of such as are professing believers to be baptized? And the answer given is, The infants of such as are professing believers are not to be baptized because there is neither command nor example in the Holy Scriptures or a certain consequence from them to baptize such. And there we have the main point of difference between the Westminster Shorter Catechism and our Baptist Catechism. In our view, baptism is to be given only to those who have professed faith in Christ. Now, if you have a copy of the Baptist Catechism, I would encourage you to open it now to question one, uh, so that I might show you something of its structure and contents. Uh, You can access the Baptist Catechism online. In fact, our website has a very nice uh, presentation of it, emmausrbc.org backslash catechism. You can also buy the Catechism. Uh, We have them for sale each Lord's Day. They're little black books, and I think they're very handy. Uh, The front part of the book contains our Confession of Faith, and the back part contains our Catechism. But if you have access to the Catechism, either digitally or in a physical form, uh, please open to question one. And as you do, notice that the first five questions are most foundational. They are these. One, who is the first and chiefest being? Two, ought everyone to believe there is a God? Three, how may we know there is a God? The answer given there is that God is revealed in nature, but particularly in the Holy Scriptures. Four, what is the Word of God? And five, may all men make use of the Holy Scriptures. We will consider each of these questions and answers carefully in the weeks to come. But for now, I want you to see that these are foundational principles which establish that there is a God who is to be worshipped, that he is our authority for truth, and that he has revealed himself to us in his holy word. Question six is very important, for it reveals the subject matter of questions seven through 86 of the Catechism. Question six asks, what things are chiefly contained in the Holy Scriptures? In other words, what do the Holy Scriptures mainly tell us about? And the answer given is that the Holy Scriptures chiefly contain what man ought to believe concerning God and what duty God requireth of man. Those who complain that we who are Reformed and make use of catechisms and confessions have elevated those documents to on par with or above Scripture have not read these documents very carefully. The very first sentence in our confession states that the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And the opening section of our catechism establishes that God is our authority for truth and that he has revealed himself in the word of God. According to question six, our catechism in large part answers two questions. What do the Holy Scriptures say concerning what man ought to believe concerning God? And what do the Holy Scriptures say concerning what duty God requireth of man? The Catechism, therefore, is a summary of the teaching of Holy Scripture on these important subjects. Notice that questions 7 through 43 
of our catechism have to do with the first thing mentioned in question six, namely, what man ought to believe concerning God. Question seven asks, for example, what is God? And then answers are given. Question 44 through 86 deal with the second thing mentioned in question six, namely, what duty God requireth of man? So if you would, please turn with me to question 44. It is there that we will read, What is the duty which God requireth of man? It is in that section, questions 44 through 86, that we will encounter a wonderful exposition of the Ten Commandments. Earlier I mentioned that when we teach our children the catechism, or anyone else for that matter, we teach them the gospel. Well, how so, you might be wondering. Well, after learning about who God is, and who we are, and what it is that God requires of us in his law, the Catechism puts this question to us in question 87. Is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? The answer is very important. If we understand God's law at all, we will have to respond in the way that the Catechism teaches, saying, No mere man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but daily break them in thought, word, or deed. Question 89 then asks, What doth every sin deserve? The answer is that every sin deserveth God's wrath and curse, both in this life and in that which is to come. And so these questions take the law of God that we have just learned and they apply them to us so that the law might break us and cause us to see our tremendous need for a Savior. And after the law has done its work, we are given the gospel. Question 90 of our catechism asks, What doth God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? And the answer is, To escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requireth of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption. And then question 91 says, What is faith in Jesus Christ? The answer, Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone, for salvation, as he is offered to us in the gospel. Question 92 asks, what is repentance unto life? Answer, repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God, with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. So there is the gospel. It's communicated to us after the law has been appropriately applied. We learn the law of God because it is still a light to our feet. It reveals to us how God desires for us to live in this world. But we also are given the law so that it might break us. And after it breaks us, and after we see our tremendous need for a Savior, the Savior is presented to us. We are urged to turn from our sin and to trust in Christ, to believe upon him for the forgiveness of our sins. There's the gospel. 
questions 93 through 105 teach us about the ordinary means of grace that the Christian is to partake of for growth in Christ, particularly the Word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. After that, questions 106 through 114 teach us how to pray using that prayer which Christ taught his disciples, which is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. This section from question 93 all the way to the end of the Catechism, question 114, is very practical. We learn a lot about how we are to live the Christian life here. We learn a lot about how we are to pray. Friends, this catechism is very rich. As I have said, it teaches sound doctrine concerning God and man. It presents the gospel to us. From beginning to end, it is very practical and devotional. And I do pray that you come back from week to week as we consider these questions and answers together, as we consider the scripture texts which undergird them, and as we seek to apply these truths to our lives. Until next time, abide in Christ.